Hope is a rather universal phenomenon. All the way from the, uh, the prisoner of war who's locked up for decades through to the child on Christmas Eve, hoping that that bicycle-shaped package really is a bicycle and not Dad having a laugh. Hope comes in many forms. We hope for small things. We hope for big things. We hope most of the days about something. Now, really what we mean by hope is we, we, we wish, we want, we desire, we long for a better future. So we might say to a friend, I hope you get better. Now, really what we mean is I'd really like it for you to get better. That's something that I want for you. And we keep hoping despite all evidence. So I might say to my friend, I hope you get better, and then I see him the next week and he's not better yet, and I, well, I still hope you get better. We keep hoping that somehow something might come good. Lemony Snicket wrote like this, strange as it might seem, I still hope for the best, even though the best, like an interesting piece of mail, so rarely arrives. We long for something better. I don't know what it is that you hope in. Maybe you need to take a moment to think. Perhaps you don't often stop to think what you hope in. What do you hope for the future? What do you long for the most? What do you desire to see? Perhaps you have mundane, everyday hopes. I hope my grass doesn't die. I hope I watered it enough last night. Perhaps you have hopes for your family. I asked Edwina, what do you hope in? She said, I I hope that our kids are in heaven with us. Is there a Christian hope? Is there something that we, as God's people, should be hoping in, hoping for, longing for, looking for, expecting, desiring to happen? Well, in fact, that's where our passage begins. Now, keep Romans 15 open, and you might want to stick a piece of paper in there. We're going to go to a few other passages, but we are going to come back to Romans 15. And verse 4 begins like this. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, Paul goes somewhere that I don't think I would have thought to go to to learn about hope. He says, the Old Testament gives us hope. I mean, those are the scriptures that he had. Those were the scriptures that Jesus spoke of. What do you think of the Old Testament? What place do you think it has in the life of a Christian? In my Bible study group, there's one gentleman who hasn't had a lot to do with the Bible, and we just came up a couple of weeks ago. He asked, well, what's... I mean, the Old Testament, it's old, right? It's kind of outdated. It's for Israel and the Jews. And I mean, it's thousands of years old, right? It hasn't got anything to say to us anymore, does it? And yet Paul, he says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, to provide endurance and encouragement such that we might have hope. In fact, Jesus would say of the scriptures that they are the very words of God, that they are not going to pass away, that they will never fail, that they cannot be broken. The Old Testament is the Bible, just as the New Testament is the Bible. It is the word of God. 
So I hope that you read the Old Testament. You know the Old Testament. In fact, that's why we preach it, even if it does mean doing four weeks on the Song of Songs, as we finished up not too long ago. Right? We we did Isaiah earlier in the year. We've done Daniel and uh, Jonah and Noah and parts of one. Well, in fact, we did all of one Samuel. And next year we're going to preach through Nehemiah. We. The Old Testament is the word of God. And notice what it provides for us through the endurance and the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. Are you doing it tough at the moment? Is life hard? You're up against the wall, maybe work, maybe family, maybe health. The Old Testament teaches us how to endure. I mean, we could look at any number of examples of the people of God who went through astonishing circumstances. And we could talk about Abraham at 99 years old, as we read in a moment, promised a child, but he had none. We could talk about, oh, I could just rattle them off, David. We could talk about Saul. We could talk about uh, any of the prophets pretty much. They were all persecuted. We could talk about Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. We could talk about any number of people, of the people of God who going through the worst of all circumstances learned to trust in God, learned to endure what they were going through. For the God of his people rescued time and time and time again. Let me tell you one example. Do you know about the prophet Elijah? He's a really interesting character. He's one of two people in the Bible who are said not to have died. There you go. You can go and look that one up later, 2 Kings chapter 2, if you're interested in that. But in 1 Kings, when we first meet Elijah, we learn about, well, it's during the time of King, uh, one of the really bad kings, in fact. Let me look it up who it was, King Ahab. How about this description for a bloke? This guy, this guy was the king of Israel. He said this, uh, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Okay, Not a nice guy. Bad, bad king. He married Jezebel. You may have heard the name. Jezebel's task was to kill the prophets of God. They weren't nice people, this couple. And to this couple, Elijah gets sent. All the other prophets, they've had their heads chopped off. And Elijah rocks up and he says, God says it's not going to rain for three years because you're such a rotten mongrel. And I'm paraphrasing, okay? That's not really what, um, what Elijah said to Ahab. But anyway, and so then God says, right, now you've got to run. <laughs> you've just gone to deliver that message. Now get out of there. So he goes and hides in a cave. And for the next three years, he's on the run. I don't know what your circumstances are like. Elijah had one of the worst kings in the history of Israel pursuing him. Town by town by town, he asked, is Elijah there? You better tell me the truth or I'm going to take you out. Till finally, three years later, Elijah gets told, now you've got to go to Ahab and say to him, oh yeah, rain's over. Okay, so Elijah rocks up to King Ahab and Ahab goes, it's you, you troublemaker of Israel. And Elijah goes, oh, well, I'm not the troublemaker, you're the troublemaker. But I'll tell you what, let's settle this once for all. You bring out your prophets of your God, this so-called Baal who's so mighty and powerful, all 400 of them, and I'll have a showdown against them, just me and them. How do you endure in the face of those odds? The king wants you dead. There's 400 of their prophets, one of you. And yet Elijah endured. God delivered. The 400 prophets, 
They did their thing and they chanted and they, for day, well, not hours and hours, and they're cutting themselves and they're, Baal, please answer us. Do, 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 do. And Elijah's just taunting them. He's poking them with a stick the whole time. You know, call louder. Maybe he's sleeping. And that nothing happens. And God delivers Elijah by consuming the sacrifice and the stones that the sacrifice was on and the water that Elijah had poured on it. Our God is a God who rescues his people. And it's not just a rescue that he's going to get you out of the bad situation you're in now. He's got a much bigger rescue in plan. For it's not just endurance that we are called to, but encouragement. For our God is a God who takes the dead and brings them to new life. If you want an encouraging passage, can I commend to you Ezekiel 37? Perhaps you can write that one down to read this week. Dead, dry bones is all that is left, and God gives them life. Now, there's just some examples. We could keep going all morning, but it's hot, so we won't. Of example after example after example of the Old Testament that through endurance and encouragement produces hope, a future to long for, to look forward to. Now, what is that hope? Now flick back to Romans 15. In fact, you're still there. You didn't come with me to 1 Kings. Romans 15 and jump down to verse 8. We're going to come back to those verses in the middle later, but come down to verse 8. What is this hope that the Scriptures provide us? I tell you, Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. I tell you the truth, Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. Now, what's that about? The patriarchs were, if you like, the founding fathers of Israel, of the Jewish nation. Specifically, there were three guys, Abraham, one of his sons, Isaac, one of Isaac's sons, Jacob. There you go, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were the patriarchs and God made specific promises to those three guys. They're very interesting. They're worth looking at. So Genesis chapter 12, flick back with me. Genesis chapter 12, keep your finger in Romans 15. Well worth looking at and knowing these promises, for they really set up the entire Bible story. In a sense, the rest of the Bible is the quest to see these promises fulfilled. Genesis chapter 12. Now, you've got to remember the backstory as we come to Genesis 12. It's not hard. The Bible's only 11 chapters in. God created the world, including people. People told God to get stuffed, such that by Genesis 6, God decides to wipe them all out. He rescues one family, the family of Noah. From them, he repopulates the world, and we're thinking maybe this is going to go good again. But by the time we get to Genesis 11, another five chapters later, again, the Tower of Babel, and it's all gone to pot. Essentially, by the time we get to Genesis 12, the story is over. The relationship between God and man is so destroyed that there is no hope for anybody. And in that context, God comes and speaks to this man, Abram. He gets his name changed. That's why it's confusing. He's Abram first, Abraham later. We don't know much about him. We know his genealogy. We know he was 75 years old when God called him. We know he had no kids at the age of 75. And he, had, he was married to a woman who probably wasn't very nice, given what happens later on in the story. 
And to this man, God promised this. Listen to these promises. Genesis 12 and verse 2. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's an astonishing promise. Out of nowhere God chose one man who would become a nation through whom the world would be blessed. In Genesis 17, just a couple of chapters over, God reaffirms this promise, gives a little bit more detail. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, right, still no kids, promise of nation and descendants, but the bloke's 99, got no kids. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell down, fell face down. God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, which means father. Your name will be Abraham, which means father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There is the story that the rest of the Bible seeks to map out. There is the beginning, the little seed of the hope that is to come. Abraham did have a son. And his son in turn had two sons and one of those two sons in turn had another 12 sons. And from there the nation of Israel grew and grew and grew and grew. And we were seeking through the Old Testament the blessing that would come to the whole world. Which kind of didn't happen. I mean Israel grew and then shrunk and then grew and then shrunk and they got destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. They got occupied and they came back and they were put into exile and they came back and they got occupied again and certainly didn't seem that Israel was going to be blessed, let, let alone the nations, let alone the whole world. And yet that is what God promised and that is why back in Romans 15 it is so important that Jesus became the servant of the Jews that Jesus confirmed the promises made to the patriarchs. For Jesus is the one in whom God's promises to Abraham come true. That God will be the God of his people. That the nations will be blessed. Do you notice what it says? On behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God. Do you know who the Gentiles are? Yeah. Are you Jewish? If you're Jewish, then you're a Jew. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Well, so it's that easy. It's just a binary category, one or the other, Jews, Jews, non-Jews, Gentiles. In other words, I'm a Gentile. Most of us, are, I don't know of anyone who's Jewish 
here, maybe there is some, but we're Gentiles. Jesus confirmed the promises that the Gentiles may glorify God. That you and I, who had no claim to the promises, might be included in them. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? That is, as an adopted child of God? We're not, we're not the children by birth, so to speak. That was the nation of Israel. We have been adopted in. We've been joined in, accepted by the mercy of God. We too can come and join the praises of God. And so Paul continues quoting a whole bunch of Old Testament passages that made it clear that this is what was going to happen. Have a look, verse 9 again. That the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy that is, for his kindness in including us whom he shouldn't have. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Or again it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, as we read, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. You and I, Gentiles though we are, undeserving though we are, have been included into the promises of God such that we might praise him, such that we might rejoice in the salvation that he has brought, such that you and I might have hope. The hope of this great salvation that has been won in Jesus. We have been accepted in him. We have been included in him. The hope that we have is the hope that Israel had. Descendants. I mean, not necessarily that you know I'll have lots of kids, but that we are now part of the nation of God. Can you imagine all the Christians who will be gathered together in heaven? Millions upon millions, if not billions. That we too will have land. Not necessarily a 450 square metre block in Ingleburn, but something so much greater an inheritance in heaven, that we too will be blessed, that God is our God and we are his people. Here indeed is hope for the nations. Here is hope for me, hope for you, hope for Ingleburn, hope for our world. Here is the hope. Summarise for us in verses 5 to 7. Do you want to know what the Christian hope is? What we look forward to? What we yearn for? What we long to see and expect? Well, Paul says, verse 5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves, that is, Jew and Gentile joined together as you follow Jesus, that with one heart and with one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been united. We have been joined together and so, he says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. This is our hope, that all the nations under heaven will be joined together, Jew and Gentile, to praise, to honour, to glorify God. Is that your hope? Is that what you wake up of a morning longing for? 
desiring that God would bring about the nations for the praise of his glory? I rarely do. I have my own hopes. I have my own desires, my own wishes, my own little things that happen in my life. We need to raise our eyes. Now, this hope is really different to our hopes because our hopes are usually characterised as wishful thinking. I'd really like this thing to happen, but I have no real reason to expect it to. Whereas the hope that we have on God is rooted and grounded in the past. The scriptures that speak the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, such that the hope that God gives isn't wishful thinking hope. It's not, well, I don't really know, but maybe. It is certain and sure and definite. It will come about for God has promised and God's promises do not fail. Now I have three implications for us. Firstly, comes from verse 7. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. You and I had no claim to be the people of God. None at all. We didn't deserve it. I mean, God didn't choose us because we were particularly good, particularly smart, certainly not particularly good looking. God chose us because he is merciful. That's it. Because he is kind, because he is generous, because he looked at us and said, wow, you guys are a sorry lot. He accepted us because of, in that light and in that context. How can we, therefore, reject somebody else? Oh, no, sorry, you're, you're, uh, you're not dressed well enough. No, sorry, you're not good enough. You're not the right sort. You're not the right people. You don't fit in with us. You're not clever enough. You're not educated in the right way. You didn't go to the right place. You don't. How could we possibly reject anybody from coming to hear about this same salvation that we have received? Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean we accept sin. That doesn't mean that anything goes. But it means that for those seeking this salvation, we can rule no one out. Accept one another. Secondly, and this really is the point. This is the point of all of it. This is the point of Christian life. This is the point of being one of the people of Jesus. Do you want to know the meaning of life? Here it is. With one heart and with one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, that is what your life is about. Speaking of the wonders of the God who saved you. How often do you do that? How often do you find yourself just unable to keep in? God saved me. The promises that he made to Abraham, they've come to me in Jesus. The inheritance that was promised to the children of Abraham, the land, the blessings, the descendants, the eternity with God as my God is now mine. God is so merciful. How often do you speak like that? How often do you praise God? You know, the, the, the easiest, simplest definition of praise, it's a little bit limited, but that, that I remember is to tell someone about how good someone else is. There you go. So I could say to you guys, Edwina is an amazing wife and a great mother. Right? I'm praising her. I'm telling you about how good someone else is. 
That's not that hard. How often do you praise your God? Do you speak to other people about the extraordinary God who bought you, whose son died for you, who shed blood that you might live, who has saved up for you an inheritance into eternity? How often do you praise God? How often do you glorify him with your mouth? And how often do you glorify him with your heart? When no one else is looking, when it's not about putting a show on, when it's about pursuing wholeheartedly the Lord your God, fleeing the sin that is in your life, pursuing the holiness that he wants of you, delighting in him and his word, desiring what he has planned for your life. Here is the hope that we have, that God is gathering the nations to praise him. I had the privilege uh, in 1996, I was was a teenager, uh, we visited, we travelled to Bolivia for the 50th anniversary of the IFES, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. It's a movement around the world that has Christian groups on university campuses. And they held their 50-year anniversary in Bolivia and there was this massive conference that people attended all over South America, all over the world came. A couple of thousand attendees. I'll spare you uh, the details of what happens when everyone gets gastro and there's limited uh, porta toilets. We We won't go there. But what I do want to tell you about, though, is the singing. Because there were so many nations represented that we had to sing in multiple languages. It was an extraordinary event. The, the songbook had all the same songs in English, Spanish and Portuguese. And we'd sing it three times. And we'd sing it in English and then in Spanish and then in Portuguese. Now, you didn't necessarily know the language. <laughs> you didn't have any idea if what you're saying really kind of matches or not. But, gee, it was an experience. There were the nations gathered Different people from all over the world. There was every colour of skin you could imagine. There was every level of socioeconomic achievement that you could imagine. There were poor and rich side by side. There were tall and short side by side. And the short people were doing these ones to see the front. But anyway, everybody was there and we were all singing the praises of the one God who saved us. That is what we hope for. And so thirdly, do you long for what God has planned. Is that what you desire? Is that what your heart yearns for? What you expect to see? God gathering his people. They're here in Ingleburn. They are where you work. They are amongst your family. They are amongst your neighbours. Gathering them that along with you they might proclaim God is merciful. Our passage finishes with these words. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus in whom the promises given in the Old Testament have been extended to us, in whom we too have been adopted as your children, accepted into your family. Thank you. Thank you that you are merciful in a way that we do not and can never deserve. Teach us to hope in what you have in store, 
to desire what is on your heart. In our lives that we might with our lips, with our hearts, with all that we are, proclaim your mercy, glorify you. And Father, we ask this, that your name might be great, that you might be known, and the Lord Jesus revered, in whose name we pray. Amen.